The Chicago Loop Alliance's latest figures on the downtown rebound. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin about downtown condo sales and more from the local housing market. I spoke to one real estate agent who said, I've been showing properties to people from the North Shore who would be looking at those in-town units and crime never comes up because we now think of that as sort of the backdrop. On a weekend in Chicago, you expect to see crime. That's sort of a sad statement right there. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist, episode 500 for Thursday, July 15th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. It's the live version of the Daily Podcast. I'm your host, Amy Guth, and I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, as I am every week. And he's here to talk about news from the local housing market. Hello, Dennis. How's it going? Great. Amy, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Let's start by talking about the downtown condo market. So sales are up, but some realtors that you've talked to wonder if they couldn't perhaps be higher. Tell me what's going on. Well, yeah. So you and I have talked quite a bit and I've reported quite a bit about the idea that there would be a a quick recovery to the condo market downtown because prices were so low because the market, that part of the market had been so hard hit uh, in 2020 and people would be coming back downtown and saying, gee, I really like it here. I miss the restaurants and the cultural amenities and that sort of thing. But what I saw happening is as the city's reopening accelerated, another thing did, and that was crime. And so what I looked at specifically was the sort of outbreak of crime and dangerous or worrisome incidents in those neighborhoods where affluent people tend to buy second homes. Either I'm buying an in-town, I'm coming in from the suburbs on the weekend, uh, or I'm an empty nester finally moving in from the suburbs because I'm done raising kids, Or the third group is the tourists, the shoppers from Indianapolis, Iowa City, et cetera, who surprisingly are actually a considerable part of the downtown real estate uh, condo market. So a lot of things happening right in those neighborhoods in the headlines, including uh, a man who was found in the W Hotel with a shotgun for an rifle for an unexplained reason. Um, carjackings in Old Town and River North, which are part of this area we're talking about, a shooting in the 1100 block of Lakeshore Drive, all sort of contemporaneous with the uh, revival of the condo market in those areas. So I was just sort of looking in the the district between, along the lakefront, essentially, between Division Street and Randolph. Home sales, condo sales are rising and rising quickly. Uh, But my question was, Will this sort of outbreak slow that down? And I talked to a couple of real estate agents. I talked to several real estate agents. Some said, 
no, it will not slow things down. And others said, oh yeah, it has definitely slowed things down. Now we're right on top of this right now. So we don't yet have numbers that would that would prove either of those sides right and the other wrong. So it is something we're gonna have to watch in the near future, but there's this whole idea that, you know, I'm an empty nester and all my friends up to early 2020 were moving in from Hinsdale, Wheaton, Wilmette, whatever it is, and they all loved it, but then 2020 happened, so I didn't go. Uh, and I was just getting ready to, as, as 2021 really turned into, uh, as things turned up in 2021, will I, because of these things that are in the headlines, decide not to? And that's something I want to see uh, as, as the next several weeks and months go by. So the realtors that you talked to who said, yes, that is definitely having an impact, what were they basing that on? Just clients preference and just kind of anecdotal evidence or what? Well, yeah, on the traffic that they're seeing, they have had sales, but they feel that sales both aren't rising as fast as they could and seem just uh, people seem a little trepidatious. There was a woman who said, you know, there's this feeling that there's no control downtown. I think we all have talked about this. It's not just in these affluent neighborhoods that I'm writing about here, but throughout the city. We just sort of, we have this feeling that that crime just keeps, uh, there's very little control. It doesn't seem to be stoppable. And, uh, and of course, that's a problem throughout the city. But again, I was looking just at the condo market in this area. And, and what she said is, you know, there's this feeling that there is no control. And another agent said, yeah, it should be recovering much faster. These are both people who actually live in the neighborhood and work in the neighborhood, should be recovering faster and simply isn't. And crime is what people talk about every time. However, other side of the coin, I also spoke to real estate agents who said, I spoke to one real estate agent who said, I've been showing properties to people from the North Shore who would be looking at those in-town units and crime never comes up. She said, the day I interviewed her, she this one woman had uh, shown in-town units to two different couples from the North Shore. One was from Lake Forest and I can't remember where the other was from. And she said, no, the crime, those things just never came up because we now think of that as sort of the backdrop. When in a, on a weekend in Chicago, you expect to see crime. That's sort of a sad statement right there. But according to her, it's not stopping people from buying. So again, you know, I don't yet have data saying that it has or hasn't. But the question will be going down the line, has it? And so you said you looked from division to Randolph. Could, did you break it down any further? Did you see maybe more in the Gold Coast, a little more further south or anything like that? In the month leading up to July 7th, which would be when I pulled the data, there were 120 condos sold between Division and Randolph in the first several blocks from the lake. Um, 120 in the most recent month compared to 85 in each of the prior two months, so obviously increasing, and compared to an average of 57 a week in the prior year. So you're talking about more than doubling over what was selling during that really difficult year, 2020 into 2021. Uh, and the question is, I mean, over the course of the next few weeks, will we see that number rise from 120? Will we see it stall at 120? It, it'll be something I'll keep track of. Yeah, definitely something we will revisit. Well, speaking of revisiting, earlier this week, we talked about a parking garage on Chestnut that... Um, kind of after everything that happened in Florida with the building collapse, some residents had some concerns about it and it was ultimately closed down by the city because there were some overdue repairs. What is the latest on that building? Tuesday, I reported that 
the city cited the garage owners. I, I think you remember, and, and readers may remember, that this is a 57-story tower, eight stories of parking with one set of owners, owners, and the rest condos with another set of owners, each represented by a separate homeowners association. Um, the city went in on Friday. Our first story was on Wednesday of last week. On Friday, the city sent inspectors and shut down the garage and and told that garage owners association, you've got to get these things done now, these repairs that had been delayed since at least 2018. On uh, Tuesday of this week, I found that the city cited those owners for uh, allowing a building to become more dangerous. I have the exact wording in the article, but essentially ignoring a problem and creating greater risk. So the city shuts down the parking garage and they have to get all the cars out of the garage, but the city did not say people in the condos above have to evacuate. So that I think is a reassurance. City wouldn't respond directly to my question about, does that mean that it's safe? But I think that may be for legal reasons. But I think if if you find that city officials went in, inspected the parking garage, got that parking garage shut down instantly and uh, got all the cars out, but did not say, and all you people upstairs have to move out, then that is implicitly, apparently, a statement that we don't need to, to close down the rest of the building. Also, um, architects for who examined the building for the homeowners association, which again is separate from the garage association, issued a letter saying, we think our part, the residential part of the building is fine. They pointed out that the residential association has managed its repair program very diligently. It listed a series of years, 1998 and a few in the 2000s and 2010s, when the homeowners association took care of any concrete problems it had on on its part of the building and the third piece of that is that the lawyers for the homeowners association have made it very clear that only the garage association is going to pay for these repairs so there's no concern that the homeowners uh, are going to have to in some way participate in this repair job which could run as much as six million dollars so those would be the three primary new points since we discussed this a couple of days ago. Do you have a sense of timeline of when these repairs are going to get in, underway? There's a published timeline, whether it's realistic, I don't know, but the garage owner said that within the next few weeks, those emergency repairs will be done and then they can start on the other repairs as well. The other thing I forgot to say that we might see, I don't know whether we will, when the Department of Buildings issues these citations, it forwards them to the city's law department. The law department can take them to court and a judge can determine that there are penalties. Um, We don't know yet whether that will happen, but but that would be the next step if there is one, that there would be uh, court action against the garage owners. And what kind of penalties does that look like? None of that has been made known to me. I think a judge would probably start to ascertain, look at other cases and that sort of thing. I, I don't know what those would be. That's another one we will have to revisit soon. All right, let's talk about some houses. So let's first go to a house in Wicker Park. It is priced at just under $2.2 million. And uh, tell me about this place. Lots of glass. And I mean, don't you just love this one? This house is really fascinating. It's by the architecture firm Lederbach and Graham, uh, who I first became aware of them when they did some enormous mansions in Lake Forest. And as far as I know, this is on the small end of their work. 
It is not on the easy or lazy end of their work. It's so nice. Um, they've done really remarkable mansions, as I said, on the, on, uh, on the North Shore. They've done uh, some houses in Lincoln Park that are really nice. And then this one in Wicker Park, it's so interesting because the rear two walls are, are two of the rear two walls are glass and you have one impression. And then on the front, you have this very different impression. You have this brick facade. I don't think the picture is big enough here to see, but of course it's it's in our story. They built something, they, so they wanted to have a garage that front loads from the street because there's very little street parking. You're just off Division Street here. So parking on the street is gonna be tough. You don't have an alley for a garage. So let's have a front facing garage, but let's not make it ugly. So very interesting idea. They make it look like a rehabbed historical firehouse. And you can see it's got this nice arched uh, or archway over the pull-up door that looks like there might've been old fire trucks that went in and out of there. It's all common brick, and uh, but it's got all this nice texture. And then it's given even more texture by this great detailing along the cornice that Lederbach and Graham did. And then that common brick is here inside as well on this fireplace wall. To our left in that image would be one of the glass walls and and behind us would be another glass wall. And then we're facing this common brick wall with, with a really beautiful, I mean, that fireplace is just wonderful. It's so simple, but so dramatic. The, uh, the reason there's so much common brick available for use in this house is uh, this was built by a woman named Mimi Novak and her husband. Her father, Michael Novak, runs the very large construction firm, Novak Construction, which is known all over the city. And as they've torn down buildings or torn down pieces of buildings, they've stockpiled old common brick. And so this wall you're looking at here, the facade of the building, are all reused common brick, which I just think is a great way to use it. And it looks so warm here. And if you could get close to it, you could, you know, see the texture of that common brick, which is a nice compliment to the real sheer glass that would be on the wall next to you. I love the brick detail because that's, you're, you're looking at probably several buildings and several, you know, several buildings that meant a piece of history of Chicago that have all come together in this one house. Yeah, that have all come together into a house that, again, on that facade looks like it might be a historical building. Yeah. It really is. Uh, the seller described it as ingenious work by the architect, by Michael Graham of Lederbach and Graham. And I have to agree. I think this is really, really well done. In the kitchen, you've got uh, yellow pine on the floor. You've got open, bare beams on the ceiling so that it feels very warm. It feels sort of loft-like and industrial, but it's all new. Um, and the interesting thing, going back to that father-daughter concept where they work together with the brick, the flooring, the yellow pine flooring is something that they picked out. They, The father and daughter hunt together in Georgia, and they went to a lumber mill and picked out this wood, which, like the common brick, has a lot of different color gradations. So it's not, you know, it's not just cherry that is one shade of red or orange or whatever you would call cherry all the way across. It's got this patina or, or this mix of colors. Um, I just, I think so many really great choices were made here. Yeah, this is a neat house. I, you know, what I like about it, so many times when we see really um, airy spaces, it's very, very modern, it's all white, but there's a lot of color in this. And a lot of times we see, you know, the windows bring in so much natural, just kind of that outdoor space. And it's continued through that natural looking ceiling that I think they've kind of 
nailed it on a couple of fronts here with this that you usually don't see all of those elements in one house. No, I think you're right. Yeah. Ordinarily, a house like this would have been either so pristine white that it's a little cold or so filled with um, wood that it's a little dark. This is really done well. And here, so this is really interesting. We've gone up to the primary bedroom here and we're looking out that those glass walls are two stories high, one on the back of the house and one on the side. Here from the bedroom, you're looking out through uh, sliding doors and a balcony. You'd be looking over that two-story living room we were in and out to the trees and the outdoors. Um, really, I mean, this feels like a, a modern hunting lodge, a modern cabin. You know, it's clean, it's crisp, it's airy and modern, but you're looking out at the woods. I, I, um, I guess I'm not supposed to gush. I'm supposed to be a news reporter, but I'm, I'm kind of smitten with this house. Well, you know, what's, what's very cool about it is it's, I mean, it's sitting right in, in Wicker Park, but it feels like a tree house because of the glass walls facing all of that greenery. You do feel like you're kind of in this little private sanctuary. You do. And well, and here's your even more private sanctuary, the, the primary bath, which um, they, they chose lots of different elements, the tile, the tub, that vanity, which I thought was something they had repurposed from somewhere else. But in fact, it is, it's brand new. This sort of goes with that uh, industrial look she was looking for, but it's not hard industrial, you know, it's not Dieter and Sprockets. It's very, it, it just, it feels, I don't know, it feels warm. Um, I can't say enough about Lederbach and Graham because the other homes I've seen, which are like in the six and $7 million range are all really well done. And here you're seeing something they're asking just under 2.2 million. So this is not a middle-class house. Nevertheless, it is uh, far more modest than a lot of Lederbach and Graham's work. And uh, here's the backyard. So we had that glass enclosed living room and right outside the glass would be this patio where the these bricks are also reused. These are old street bricks and they planted big trees at the back of the lot, big Bradford pears, so that they'd get a little more privacy because you've got a glass rear wall, two stories high. And she talked about how, you know, if you want to hang up curtains, you can. I haven't done it, she said, because they felt they had enough privacy and they enjoyed having that indoor-outdoor, even at night, that indoor-outdoor feeling. And here you can see uh, what that outdoors is that is right beyond that glass. It's really, I mean, it, it, it the integration of the outdoors with the indoors is the kind of thing we see more often in like a suburban setting where you have some view to encompass or something. This is an urban lot. There are other houses on or other homes, buildings and apartment buildings on three sides. Yet, even so, the landscape is part of the home. And the brick story is just so cool. And I love that that brick extends outside and that's repurposed street bricks. I mean, in Wicker Park, there's still so many alleys that have that old brick that's ex exposed. And um, of course, sometimes it's just the asphalt is falling apart, <laughs> but you can see those little details of bricks underneath it. And I just think that's such a neat detail to kind of repurpose history and give it new life. And I think years from now, people will be talking about this house as, you know, that's one of the great things that happened in Wicker Park during its revival is that house, the way we talk about classic homes in Bronzeville and Oak Park and anywhere else. Yeah. Well, speaking of some classic homes, let's head to Kenwood and talk about a mansion. Um, it was owned by the Archdiocese and it has, it has sold. Tell me about this. Boy, this house was so ornate for its day. So this is uh, right down the block from Barack Obama's house. It's on the other side of the street, the opposite corner. 
and uh, built in 1899, I'm sorry, built in 1889. And, uh, but since 1966 was owned by the archdiocese, there was a, uh, an order in there called the Focolare movement, which was uh, a movement about the unity of all people a Catholic organization. And I, as I understand it, they did retreats and there were also members of this movement who lived there and they kept the house in really good condition. I mean, you can see the outside was in good shape when they sold it. The archdiocese has been unloading properties uh, right next door to this, or, or sorry, right on the same block. I think a couple doors down is another building, another old home owned by the archdiocese, not yet on the market, but perhaps soon. This one um, came on the market two years ago at 2.35 million, sold last week at 1.57. And the good news is, according to the agent for the buyers, the buyers are people who are, she said, not intimidated by rehabbing an 11,000 square foot house. Look at this ceiling. I have never seen this ceiling anywhere else. You know, it looks like I was trying to describe it in the story. It looks like the roof of a tent, but that sort of downgrades it. It's far more ornate than that. It looks like the fan of a peacock tail. I mean, this is just unbelievable. It's from 1889. And so during its 50 plus years that the Focolare movement was in there, they kept it as is. I assume that part of the rehab is keeping this exactly as it is, maybe replacing that chandelier. But like, you don't see this anywhere. This is not the same old ceiling. No, I feel like you and I have talked about a lot of ornate ceilings, but I've not seen one like this. We've we've talked about several, but this is yeah, a, you, a special you one. You see the sort of repeating plaster panels, or you see the wood beams. Mm -hmm. um, you might see some some sort of Art Nouveau mural painting, that sort of thing. But I mean, I, I've looked at a lot of houses, as you know, over the thirty years I've been covering this stuff. I have never seen a ceiling like that, and I'm just it's astounding. Is it wood? Is it plaster? What's up there? Uh, I don't recall whether it's wood or plaster. And what you can't tell from these pictures is that between the ribs, if you think of all those lines as ribs, between them are painted figures. But oh, I don't that's what that is. Or plaster. It's really, it's pretty, you know, if you went to a church in Europe, you would expect to see a ceiling like this. Yeah, I was going to say that's the, the Sistine Chapel dining room for sure. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And do you have a sense of why the Archdiocese is selling right now? The Focolare movement is apparently not as large as it once was. Um, the Archdiocese doesn't list where that movement is headquartered now, but the, the Archdiocese has been unloading property. You know, they've been closing schools, et cetera, over the course of the past years. And I, I assume this is part of that. You're going to put some money into it, but you're starting for an 11,000 square foot house. You're starting at only a million and a half. So whatever your uh, rehab costs, you're still, you know, you still come in with a lower total than perhaps if you had bought this on the Gold Coast or in Hinsdale or something like that. Oh, if this was on the Gold Coast, I can't even imagine the price. It'd be way, way more than that, for yeah. sure. All right. Well, what's coming up in the week ahead, Dennis? We've been talking about the boom and I'm looking at how it's affecting the Chatham neighborhood. And next week we'll get the uh, end of the first half real estate data. So we'll really be able to, to see what the boom has done in 2021. Very good. All right. Well, we will look forward to catching up with you then. Thanks so much. Appreciate your time. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, the pace of venture funding in Chicago is clipping along thanks to a flurry of $100 million deals. We'll talk about that and more right after this.
Here's a great way to stay in touch with Crane's Daily Gist. Subscribe to the Crane's Morning 10. It's our daily newsletter featuring the 10 biggest stories of the day. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com slash morning 10. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. As more people get vaccinated against COVID-19, downtown activity has steadily increased, especially in June when the Chicago Loop Alliance measurements reached their highest levels since the start of the pandemic. In its latest monthly report released this week, the organization said Loop office buildings are reopening amenity floors and loosening masking and distancing guidelines. Worker occupancy was running at 31% of normal pace with the rest of the country. The group predicts that office occupancy will reach 50% by summer's end. The report also said that at the end of June, pedestrian data saw its highest week-to-week increase since the start of the pandemic, and that State Street is set to reach 1 million pedestrian impressions per week for July. Digital parking bookings were at 110% of 2019 levels, according to the report, while parking garage operations also went up in June. Chicago Loop Alliance President and CEO Michael Edwards said in a statement, not only are we seeing a rise in all the usual metrics we track, but we're also seeing increased vehicle traffic on state and Michigan in the Loop, and O'Hare and Midway airports are reporting great improvements to their passenger numbers. Wendell Hudson has the story and more data at chicagobusiness.com. Dramatic rate cuts pay off for State Farm in a customer survey. The nation's largest auto insurer comes out of the pandemic with substantial gains in J.D. Power's latest report, which also contains a hard lesson for competitors Allstate and GEICO. Steve Daniels is reporting the story in detail for Cranes. As with many industries, 2020 was a year unlike any other for the auto insurance business, but in a a very different way. It was a year of windfall profits as uh, drivers stayed off the roads with people working from home and uh, insurers needed to figure out how to reimburse their policyholders for those windfalls and at least share some of it. The clear winner based on uh, in terms of winning the uh, approval of their their customers uh, was State Farm. This is per a recent J.D. Power customer satisfaction survey. State Farm uh, reacted very quickly with very substantial rate cuts, 11% on average throughout the country, but uh, in many states, including Illinois, the the cuts were even deeper than that. For uh, Allstate and Geico and some of uh, State Farm's rivals, which took the approach of providing temporary rebates, uh, that didn't work so well in terms of uh, customer winning customers' affections, at least, again, according to this survey. In fact, uh, only about half uh, of customers nationwide were even aware that their insurer was providing them temporary uh, reductions in, in the premiums they had to pay. M1 Finance, which helps customers invest and borrow money, has raised $150 million from investors led by SoftBank's Vision Fund 2. The company, which started six years ago as a no-fee online brokerage, raised $75 million in March and $50 million in October. And all that puts the company's valuation at nearly $1.45 billion. The ninth Chicago venture-backed company this year to reach a valuation of $1 billion or more, or so-called unicorn status. SoftBank previously invested in ShipBob, which recently also hit that same milestone. 
M1's account volume has grown from just over 100,000 accounts a year ago to nearly half a million, while assets have grown about 4.5 billion, up from 1.5 billion. Worker headcount has tripled to 265 since the end of 2020, and CEO Brian Barnes told Cranes that he expects to have 500 workers by the end of next year. And digital investing is a pretty busy space. The popular trading app Robinhood is prepared to go public and could be valued at as much as $40 billion. Chicago-based Tasty Trade, a trading and education platform aimed at individual options traders, was acquired this year by London-based IG Group for $1 billion. Unlike Robinhood, M1 doesn't clear its own trades, and so the company hasn't had to pile up a lot of capital as collateral. The company's also added checking and borrowing to its investment app. And speaking of venture capital, VC funding in Chicago slipped 18% in the second quarter from a large first quarter that was the best performance in at least seven years. Chicago companies received $1.7 billion in the second quarter, down from nearly $2.1 billion in the first three months of the year. That according to data from PitchBook and the National Venture Capital Association. Cranes reporter John Pletz writes that nonetheless, the second quarter results are eye-popping. Venture capital investment continues at a blistering pace in Chicago, where companies have raised more money in the first six months of 2021 than they did in all of last year. A big reason for the increase in funding in Chicago and nationally is a surge in mega rounds of $100 million or more, such as a $150 million investment announced today by M1, personal finance app. M1 is one of a growing pool of Chicago companies that have reached unicorn status for valuations of more than $1 billion this year. As Chicago declined between the first and second quarters, Los Angeles rose 2% to $6.3 billion, and New York saw a 3.5% increase to $11.4 billion. But through the first half of the year, Chicago has seen a greater increase in funding than New York or Los Angeles, according to PitchBook. Cranes reporter John Pletz has more. The surge in venture capital funding is a result of the increasing amount of money looking for opportunity. Lured by strong demand for IPOs and mergers and acquisitions, hedge funds and private equity funds have moved into venture capital. Chicago companies raised $3.8 billion in the first two quarters, a 239% increase from the same period a year prior. Los Angeles saw a 156% increase and New York a 167% bump. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening and I'll meet you right back here next time.